Hello and welcome to Rock and Roll Politics, the podcast with me, Steve Richards. Thanks so much for tuning in. And as ever, of course, we've got a lot to cram in in our time together. If it's okay with you, there goes the text. It always starts, you know, when I record. Uh, the texts start kind of piling in from nowhere. Um, let me just silence the phone or whatever you do. Okay, so if it's... Uh, well, that's just added to the suspense on what I shall be reflecting on. I will do a kind of um, melange of uh, related themes. Uh, the end of the Tory era... Uh, via the by-elections of last week, and then reflect on a fascinating quote in Tom Baldwin's new biography of Keir Starmer. It's a sort of kind of authorised biography. And there was a fascinating quote, it's being serialised in The Times, there was a fascinating quote from Angela Rayner, which I thought I would just read out to you and then analyse for a bit before we return to your amazing questions on a whole range of themes. And if you want to join in our never-ending debate, you know, Dylan is on a never-ending tour, we're on a never-ending debate, do email any reflections, questions to steverick14 at icloud.com. steverick14 at icloud.com. And just uh, a few notices before then. Um, yeah, for those of you who kindly subscribe to Patreon, the Patreon version of Rock and Roll Politics, um, there is a new bonus podcast out there for you. It's in this series I'm doing uh, under the theme of Preparing for Power then and now. And it's looking back at interviews I did when I was political editor of the New Statesman in the build-up to the 1997 election, the last time Labour appeared to be really on the verge of power. The kind of widespread assumption that they were going to win uh, was already set. And I'm finding it really fascinating, this series. If you, if you haven't subscribed, I do recommend it. It helps us with the great legendary podmasters uh, produce the podcast. But but more than that, it's uh, I think the um, because we can just, uh, we as in all of us on Patreon can delve deep around one theme, it, it's really interesting. And anyway, the bonus one this month is on uh, an interview I did with Claire Short, in the summer of 1996, August 96, early August. And so less than a year before that 97 general election, one of the themes emerging at the time was the centralization of new labor. The control freakery had become a term. And Claire Short gave me this interview. Um, uh, she was in the shadow cabinet, which I thought, and indeed, uh, Peter Mandelson, who was in charge, Tony Blair had just gone on holiday, thought as well, could bring down the whole New Labour project. And it's, it's a fascinating forensic attack on Tony Blair being captured by those she called the people in the dark. Um, she describes New Labour as a lie, in the way it dismisses some of the great achievements of the past, and so anyway, it's, it was it's, it was it was it, at the time seen as an incredible onslaught. Uh, made all it led all the TV bulletins, radio bulletins, newspapers. The Guardian asked me to do a long thing about how it had all happened. Uh, Peter Mandelson summoned me to Labour Party HQ to have a conversation about it. There was talk of Blair coming back from France or wherever he was. But I found it very interesting to dissect because some of it was a very intelligent early analysis of some of the fault lines of the new Labour project. Um, it was partly fueled by anger, without a doubt. She had just been demoted in a shadow cabinet reshuffle. Uh, but it was quite, there were quite a few interesting insights and quite a lot of parallels with now uh, when Keir Starmer is criticised in different ways. Anyway, it's, I think it's worth listening to, so do subscribe and we'll get another bonus podcast out to all of you soon. And um, the next one actually will be an interview with Tony Blair I did in the build-up to 97. Because again, it's interesting 
what he knew then, what he didn't know would happen and unfold. And the kind of echoes with now as Keir Starmer moves towards that nerve-shredding election campaign and then almost certainly government in, in, in a much more challenging context than Blair faced, although it always seems almost unbearably challenging as you approach it in whatever context as a Labour leader of the opposition. Um, so, yeah, please subscribe. Also, coming up uh, next month, we're almost got, isn't it time rushing by at the moment? Anyway, in March, uh, Rock and Roll Politics is back live um, for the first time in 2024 election year, um, live at the Rope Tackle Art Centre in Shoreham, the legendary Rope Tackle. Uh, that's uh, kind of in early-ish March. I haven't got the date on me, but you can get it on the Rope Tackle website uh, if you're on the South Coast or anywhere, really. Get down to it, be fun. And then, um, I only know the stakes, I know off by heart, uh, March the 26th, live at King's Place for the first time this year um, with a brand new show. We'll have had the budget, the build-up to the kind of local elections which have acquired an even greater significance for obvious reasons and so on. Anyway, it will, it will all be fresh and the great thing about these venues is that as members of the Rock and Roll Politics Cooperative, which you all are, we can shape the evening together and we will delve deep and have fun and uh, it'll be structured. A few drinks during and after. Um, not the kind of thing you get if I were to book the O2 Centre, say. Um, anyway, look, see you all uh, then. And the links for the tickets will be on the blurb for this podcast or you can go to the relevant websites. So, yeah, God, what to choose. It was interesting about those by-elections. I thought John Curtis... Um, play down, not kind of deliberately, I'm not saying that that genius is sort of overtly biased, he wouldn't be in that job, um, but play down to some extent the degree to which they really do show that we're on the verge of a, a change of government. I mean, he played up the significance of reform uh, in the by-elections, the, 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 the vote that's killed, and, and the, the very low turnout. And some of you have written about that uh, in our never-ending debate on this podcast. We'll come to that shortly. And they're both, of course, valid observations to make, although some thought reform would have do even better than the percentage vote they got in Wellingborough in particular. Um, the low turnout is a pretty common factor uh, in by-elections. Um, so I don't think it's hugely significant, although, of course, we have said and discussed on this podcast many times, us lot reflecting on politics are freaks in Britain. Um, most people don't think about it at all. And at a time of turmoil, uh, where both parties in different ways have got unresolved crises, uh, much deeper in the Tory party than Labour at the moment, but both have, um, you will get a degree of um, indifference amongst an electorate, electorate who by instinct don't follow politics closely. Um, but but by-elections don't often get huge turnouts. Um, I still think the most significant thing was that the swing in Wellingborough uh, kind of was the second biggest swing in post-war by-elections, apparently only topped by the Dudley by-election, which took place in uh, December 1994. Now, that's one I remember vividly uh, because I covered it as the BBC political correspondent. Um, so I was there the whole time. I'll never forget it because it was just in the build-up to Christmas. And the centre of the constituency, there was this huge shopping centre, I think the biggest in Europe. And I had to do a piece of camera down some 
bloody slide in a funfair, uh, which was a permanent fixture in the constituency. But the other thing I remember from doing it, oh yeah, by the way, if you want to laugh, on YouTube, if you click Steve Richards' Dudley by-election, BBC or something, uh, I come up on the night, you know, the BBC did a by-election special with David Dimbleby, and I'm there live in Dudley recording the biggest swing in history. But it was it's really interesting uh, uh, as an example of being on the ground and discovering things. And I came back, as I said, it was December 94. Blair had been leader for six months-ish. Um, uh, he got in in July 94. Um, there was still a long way to go before the general election, which wasn't until May 1997. Um, but I remember coming back saying to anyone who would listen... That's it for the Tories. Um, They've lost it. Because wherever we went, you had to do these Vox Pops. And it's one of the artificial natures of Vox Pops that they had to be balanced. So we had to find voices being pro-Tory. And it was really difficult to find in a constituency that in 1992 had returned a Tory MP with a whopping majority. And although, you know, Blair would continue to fight his, what he called his war on complacency, a phrase, one of many Blair's phrases that have been transplanted into the current situation, there was a clear sense in that Dudley by-election that it was over for the Tories, whatever John Major did. And Major was a far more supple, thoughtful politician, leader, who had won an election, had the authority of winning an election, than Sunak is now, uh, who has followed the chaos of the last 13, 14 years. Um, He had a cabinet of really skillful, charismatic, weighty people, Ken Clark, Michael Heseltine, and others. It didn't matter. The voters had turned and weren't going to come back And Wellingborough, clearly the mood was similar when you get a swing on the Dudley North scale. Um, That's, uh, I think, the conclusion, that it's over. And it's fascinating watching Tory MPs and their newspapers screaming for tax cuts um, as if that kind of solves it for them and the economy. And yet the... Polls suggest voters are more intelligent than that. They can see that public services are on their knees. They need investment. They need reform as well. And there should be a grown-up debate, as we've had on this podcast, and will do again, about what the reform should be. Everyone's in favour of reform. It's what it should be. But only a few, Tony Blair being one, I think, thinks the spending level is not that significant. Um, it's obvious that investment is required as a much more urgent priority than tax cuts. And yet tax cuts, tax cuts, tax cuts, even though surveys of voters show that by huge margins, they um, want public spending to be prioritised over tax cuts. I mean, that's not that new, to be honest. Surveys often show that, and then they vote for the party proposing tax cuts. But at the moment, things are so stark. Um, And when you have an intelligent debate about tax and spend, not easy in the build-up to an election, uh, you get voter support. The tax rise that Gordon Brown introduced in his budget, was it um, 2002, 2003? The national insurance rise to pay for a big increase in spending on the NHS. The Sunday Telegraph did a poll afterwards, hoping and assuming voters will give their thumbs down to such a budget. It turned out the headline was Brown's budget, the most popular in polling history or something, because there was a clear connection between the tax rise and the objective spending and improving the NHS. It's, it is it, it is much more complicated than that. And it will be interesting to see if Hunt, remember his national insurance uh, cut uh, uh, announced at the end of last year, is now in place. It was in place from January. No impact whatsoever on the Tories standing 
in the opinion polls. It kind of raises a question of whether Labour can dare to say that tax cuts paid for by proposed brutal spending cuts um, forwarded into the next parliament are a step too far and they dare to oppose them. Um, I suspect that won't happen. They'll accept them. But boy, does that leave them in a bind when they begin to rule, which I think Wellingborough in particular suggests that they are going to do, combined with all those other by-elections, remember the one in Scotland um, in the autumn and um, the opinion polls. And old Sunak carries on and on. You've got to admire his um, energy. Um, But it is, if he has a grain of optimism, and I sense it's fading in him, it gets you in the end when you wake up each day to bleak opinion polls and by-election defeats and low personal ratings and a party that's almost impossible to manage. Um, You would have to be superhuman to transcend all of that. And I don't think he has. And in Keir Starmer, he faces a really interesting, complicated opponent. And this was uh, reinforced to me. As you know, I've said here on the podcast quite a few times, probably too many, that uh, the idea of him being boring is so banal and simplistic and cliche-ridden, just false. Um, He's, I mean, personally, clearly he had an extraordinary life, as uh, Baldwin's book, I think, will illustrate, uh, and with a range of interests that a lot of voters can relate to, like football, kind of, learning the piano with fat boy Slim and all this kind of thing. Um, He doesn't have to pretend to be interested in football. He's obsessed by football. Anyway, and plays it as well as watch Arsenal. But he's interesting as well because he is so unusual as a political figure. Which brings me to a quote uh, from Angela Rayner that I read in the Sunday Times uh, or the Times serialisation of Tom Baldwin's book. And, And remember now, although you wonder quite what they think of each other um, in the depths of their privacy. But uh, in in public, Starmer and Rayner work together well. Uh, Angela Rayner's interview with Tom Baldwin would have been positive because she's not going to say things that um, will cause trouble at this point in their relationship and in the electoral cycle. Uh, And anyway, as she would have known that Tom Baldwin was sort of Keir's choice as author. It was originally going to be, incidentally, a ghost-written book. Tom was going to write up a book, but it would have gone out in Keir's name based on many interviews with him. So this is kind of authorised, authorised, authorised. And Angela Rayner is being loyal, loyal, loyal. And this quote is not disloyal. It's not like Claire Short's onslaught, which you can reflect on uh, if you subscribe to uh, the Patreon version of Rock and Roll Politics, which incidentally doesn't cost very much. Um, But anyway, here is Tom Baldwin writing up his interview with Angela Rayner. She goes on, even though he's leader of the Labour Party, Keir is the least political person I know in politics. That's the quote from Angela. Then, Tom, explaining why she thinks this is both a strength and a weakness, she continues. Sometimes you have to understand where people are coming from to understand their motives. And I tried to help him steer away from some of the political pitfalls that can come and bite you. His natural instinct is, forget the politics, is this right or wrong? But there's lots of grey in politics, it's not necessarily as clear-cut as that. Now, I think this is very interesting because, uh, first of all, let's go through it. Um, I I love analysing texts like a Shakespeare text. Um, Only in podcasts do you get the time to do this. So let's begin with the opening observation. Even though he's leader of the Labour Party, Keir is the least political person I know in politics. When you think about it, that is an astonishing observation because 
every predecessor in terms of leading the Labour Party were deeply political, came from a political context which was pretty easy to read. They'd been around for so long and been involved in so many internal battles in the Labour Party. You know, whoever you choose, Harold Wilson say, uh, by the time he took his party to victory just in 1964. You know, he had been in Attlee's government in the late 1940s, president of the Board of Trade. He resigned with Bevan over the introduction of prescription charges. He had formed allies, internal opponents, got to know a load of people throughout the 50s and early 60s. Uh, by the time he was leader of the Labour Party. Um, moving on to say uh, Neil Kinnock, who led from nine years after 1983, clearly involved in nightmarish battles after he became an MP in 1970, um, not least the battle for the deputy leadership of the Labour Party in 1981, Tony Benn versus Dennis Healy. Many assume Neil, who was on the left, would back Tony Benn. He didn't. Um, he backed a third candidate, John Silkin, who stood. D defining moments in a person's rise to the top. Tony Blair, with famously with Gordon Brown, sharing an office when they became elected in 1983 spending obsessive amounts of time together, working out how to make the party electable again, forming a well-known and familiar alliance with Peter Mandelson, um, getting to know a range of people within Labour, out of Labour, and uh, clearly positioned by the time they became leader. And there's Angela Rayner saying, and few would dispute this, that Keir, uh, let's go back to it, is the least political person I know in politics, which is um, so different from all Labour's predecessors. Then she says, sometimes you have to understand where people are coming from to understand their motives, implying that he doesn't always understand where people are coming from and understanding their motives. Um, and... Again, this is sort of reinforced by conversations I have with other shadow cabinet people. One shadow cabinet person said to me, uh, and he didn't know the answer to this question, but he said the answer, when it becomes clear, will define the course of the government. Uh, and the question is, are the Blairites manipulating Keir Starmer or is Keir Starmer manipulating the Blairites. And it's a fascinating question. The Blairites, as in, say, you know, the right of the Labour Party, who um, tend to worship at the altar of Tony Blair, who have been given prominent positions. And whenever those of that ilk are given prominent positions and people ride up, or oh, this is a return of the Blairites, and Keir pops up and says, well, you know, I, I just point because they're good. I don't know about, you know, what's all this faction talk? They're just good. And it is interesting that maybe, you know, because he was DPP and impartial and distant from all the battles uh, that were going on within Labour, not just under Ed Miliband, but before that, of course, with the Blair Brown thing, uh, which continues uh, to some extent. And then a lot of those around him were formed in the sort of campaign the hopeless campaign to get Liz Kendall made Labour leader in 2015, the one where Jeremy Corbyn won and she came last with 4%, and that, that fueled a kind of loathing of the left and all that has followed. From. Anyway, he probably is not that versed in it all. But then this question uh, Angela Rayner uh, poses his natural instinct is forget the politics is this right or wrong but in a way the essence of politics is, is defined defines your view about what is right and wrong um and so when he gets advice to you know not do the 28 billion or he gets advice to expel left right and center it comes with a weight of assumptions and orthodoxies framed by many, many years in internal battles and trying to win elections and lose, losing elections and all the rest of it. 
Um, it doesn't come from a purity of, oh, you know, I'll give Kira a call and I'll advise him this because it's right. Well, of course, you believe it's right, but you believe it's right for lots of reasons, as Angela Rayner implies. Um, as she put it, there's lots of grey in politics. It's not necessarily as clear-cut as that. And I think it does tell us much about Kistama that his deputy reflects openly on this. Um, I think, you know, if she'd done a Claire Short, she'd have been in trouble. He can't get rid of her. She's elected. But um, anyway, that was her being diplomatic. And it is interesting. And there are strengths in that position. I think Keir uh, comes across more and more in some respects as, you know, a kind of rather strict head teacher who's been brought into a dysfunctional school and the Labour Party is the most dysfunctional of parties at the best of times um, and had not been involved in all the internal squabbles in the school before he arrived um, and kind of thought his job is to sort this dysfunctional school out and turning to people without quite knowing their background in various battles and their motives and so on. Um, and he has, on one level, uh, sorted much of the boisterous, dysfunctional school out in, in, in managerial terms. I mean, you know, it's, it's 20 points ahead in the polls and has just had the biggest swing in the by-election since Dudley in December 1994. But, as Angela Rayner implies discreetly, you have to be aware of politics and the development of policy in terms of the people you choose to listen to. And this will become more profound, I think, in government, because my view is that in government, just whatever people's ideological inclinations, the sheer demands from voters will have to lead to, say, greater investment in public services, and quite quickly, and uh, tax rises. Um, I mean, when you've got people like Paul Johnson of the IFS, not a kind of Marxist saying tax rises are unavoidable and inevitable, you're going to get them. But there will be some, um, I mean, Tony Blair goes around and says, look, you know, we, you know tax taxes high, right? You know, um, it's reform. You need. I mean, Tony Blair's always been like this. In government, he used to give interviews as prime minister early on, saying taxes are going to go down. That's the way the world is going. He said, did that in a pre-conference interview to The Independent in 1998, I think. But then, and then at the start of the second term, there's a very good book by Peter Hyman, actually, who's now back in number number 10, he will be, uh, in Keir Starmer's office, uh, where he reports they're all going to a meeting in Chequers. And Tony Blair is convinced that public spending levels are high enough. That's not the issue. And everyone else is saying we, that's not the case. You know, we're still on Tory spending levels. And then, of course, it's Tony Blair who changes his mind when the Mail and others start campaigning about the terrible state of the NHS. And he rightly said the pledge is to get spending up to uh, EU levels. So he doesn't always stick to this line himself. But I think inevitably, when they do these things and go through for rough patches, um, I suspect there will soon be briefings that he's not following new Labour enough and uh, and there will be trouble ahead. But those things will not be right or wrong. It will be from a perfectly legitimate political perspective. But as Angela Rayner suggests, it is very political. Politics is political. Um, and so, I, anyway, I thought that was a sort of just an interesting observation. The the passages I've read so far are, are really interesting. Um, so he's not boring. And he was an extraordinary lawyer, did a lot of cases for nothing when he could be earning a fortune. Now can't show off about that or not show off, but, you know, proclaim it because it's sort of tricky being a lawyer in Tory Britain, where breaking the law has become the end thing. Um, and being a lawyer in Islington, and not that he's from Islington, is part of his problem. But um, very tough. His parents were both ill at different times, especially his mother. 
kind of lots of challenges. But anyway, the book's not out yet. Uh, I bumped into Tom Baldwin at Westminster the other day, and I, uh, I said, I want to interview you, and he agreed. But if he's doing loads of interviews, I think we can delve deep through other means because you don't want to hear him being interviewed all over the place. But anyway, let's see. Um, now, if it's okay with all of you, over to your brilliant points and questions. And if you want to join in, remember steverick13 at icloud.com. That's S-T-E-V-E-R-I-C at icloud.com. And the first one from Anne Scurfield. I'm happy to say my son and grandson now all go together to your King's Place live shows. Oh, that's great. Um, uh, we'll see you on March the 26th, Anne, hopefully. And, all, and, and your whole generational family, your family of many generations. Um, one question increasingly puzzles us, which is the timidity of Tory leaders. In the 1980s, Neil Kinnock boldly and ruthlessly saw off militants' challenge and threat to the coherence of the Labour Party. By contrast, Tory leaders have appeased those on the right of their party. The anti-EU groupings and now the destructive chaos of the five families have never been firmly and ruthlessly confronted from John Major to the present day. Why? Now, this is a really important question, which goes to the heart of the modern Conservative Party. After its slaughter in 1997, it cried out for a, a Neil Kinnock-style uh, set of reforms to recalibrate the party, uh, remember, it felt Europe was raging throughout the 1992 to 97 Parliament, and it needed someone like Michael Heseltine. But he pulled after 97; he thought he wasn't well enough. Uh, he had a heart attack during the previous Parliament um, to really take that lot on and win and sort the party out, as Neil Kinnock did during those nine years. It never happened. David Cameron affected an interest in modernisation, but he gave the Tory Eurosceptics everything they wanted, including the referendum. Um, and he won the leadership contest on the back of a ridiculous proposition for the uh, Tory members of the European Parliament to pull out of the centre-right grouping of that parliament. So it has never happened. And instead, like a film noir, each Tory leader tries to appease the right and the right come back for more and then destroy the Tory leader. You can see it happening with Sunak. He doesn't think this Rwanda policy is going to sort out the boats. And he, when he was Chancellor, thought it was far too expensive as well. But he's doing it in an attempt to appease the right. The right come back and say, you're hopeless. Um, you know, we would like to see these people on those planes now, even if it means breaking every law in the land and Europe and the international law. And yet it goes on and on and on. And I think in the end, what will happen is they will pick someone from the right, like Neil Kinnock, who was uh, from the left, who will who will in the end realize that he needs he or she needs to take these people on but it becomes more complicated when you've got reform breathing down your neck from the right as well and that of course is another factor in all of this um we've got david who doesn't give his surname because He's a member of the Labour Party. He's worried he'd be expelled if any of this uh, critique ever emerges. But he points out this, there's a lot of glass-half-empty analysis of the by-elections, John Curtis-esque analysis. Um, he points out that if you analyse the by-elections held since 2019, there's been an average 28% fall in turnout since that general election, and that's higher than any other post-war parliament and shows deep disillusionment and alienation. Uh, yeah, uh, I, I, I'll comment in a minute, David, because others have made the same 
point, Jeff Strange says in the Wellingborough by-election, essentially the Conservative vote has lost around 25,000 votes. That's huge. But Labour need to be wary of directly translating this result towards the general election as their vote has only increased by 107. Um, Yes, but in a lower turnout and a colossal drop in the Tory vote, I, I suppose it just depends on whether you think that drop in the Tory vote is as significant as it seems. And we won't know until the election Um, But all we can say is that by-elections are not a wholly reliable guide to general election outcomes, um, but this near to an election and so much part of a pattern over the last year, I think, you know, those who see a glass more half full from the Labour perspective are probably closer to it. And Jeff said, oh, Jeff's coming to the live choking space. That is great. We're going to delve so deep and make sense of so much and have a laugh it's compulsory um thank you uh, very much blake ford uh i've been interested hearing all the suggestions for labor slogans this was started by christian walmart the last live show at king's place um and the similar tone they take of some optimism togetherness i like this together thing I wanted to ask you, though, whether, if like me, you think a slogan is far less important than the overall framing and language of Labour's pitch. I found Drew Weston's book on emotions in politics really engaging. Well, that's interesting because uh, thank you for that, Blake, because I don't know about this book, but I'm going to get hold of it. Emotion and politics is a rich, rich theme. And I agree with you. I can't remember the slogans from most elections. Of course, there was the uh, famous 1979 Saatchi slogan for the Conservatives, Labour isn't working, uh, which was which was a stroke of genius um, with cues of people at the dole. You know, it was clever as well because uh, Margaret Thatcher and Geoffrey Howe knew that in the short term, at least, their monetary policies were going to massively increase unemployment. Um, in fact, that was their method of getting inflation down in the end. But mostly you can't remember slogans. But you are right. The framing of arguments are the essence of the art of persuasion in politics. And they matter in the build-up to an election and beyond. And as we've discussed here, and in my books on prime ministers and prime ministers we never had, you have to be a political teacher to be a commanding leader. Um, Without that skill, it's not a bonus, it's part of uh, leadership, and uh, that applies in government and outside. Um, Lewis, as a student, I'm often felt wondering why a lot of my friends feel so disengaged from the formal political system. Many tell me they have no interest in voting this year. This is reinforcing the point made by David and Jeff. What can political leaders on both the left and the right do to actively engage young voters in politics when the turnout looks like being so low, based on conversations Stuart has had as a student? Yeah, well, it's it, the, the answer, we need a whole po- podcast on how you engage uh, young voters, uh, because it's partly through the policy propositions. Um, you see, the one of the elections that's been airbrushed out of history is the 2017 election. But both the main parties were putting forward proposals uh, that made a kind of direct connection with voters' lives, um, whether it was Labour, say, on housing, who knows whether it would have happened, or their kind of plans for education, or the Tories actually in some of the things they were proposing about a more active state and social care being sorted. That was obviously not aimed at young people directly, because uh, that's probably the last thing on their minds. Uh, but um, the sense of um, using the state as an agent to bind people together rather than leaving it to everyone to fight amongst themselves. And if you're young, you can't afford housing, you can't afford to get on a bus or a train and all the other stuff. Uh, and you feel left behind to revive a powerful slogan 
misused in the Brexit referendum. So that's part of it. I think there are other ways in which you can engage. And it's also, to be honest, not just down to the politicians. It really is down to young people. To go. There was a lot of talk. Do you remember during the Brexit referendum in 2016, they couldn't be asked to go out and vote and Glastonbury was on. So, you know, got to get out there. Uh, the reason why older people are treated uh, with greater generosity is because they vote. Um, so anyway, let's have a longer chat about that um, and keep me informed of what your fellow students are thinking, Lewis, in the build-up to the election. Over now to our Brussels correspondent, Caroline Morgan. Now, I'm going to call her our Brussels correspondent forever, even though Caroline is leaving Brussels. Anyway, she uh, is a big Keir Starmer supporter, and she says that uh, we were. Sort of, I was proposed uh, in the light of the 28 billion retreat in uh, last week's podcast. I was comparing the boldness of the Tories in opposition on the verge of power, 79-2010. Policies of the radical right confidently asserted and framed, to go back to that earlier point, um, compared with Labour's, oh, no, no, we can't do that, can't do that. Oh, no, my God, help. Um, anyway, Caroline, amongst many other points, makes the point. Isn't the reason why Starmer can't be bolder is that he faces a biased media out to get him, which Thatcher didn't face in 1979. Uh, yeah, you, you, you are right. I think I put that in my reflection last week. I hope I did. I mean, it's one of the factors, though not the only one, uh, but one of the factors is that uh, when you are dependent on a media, media to mediate, um, it has a huge influence on you. And Margaret Thatcher had doting newspapers putting her case and making it popular. And the, the trouble is Keir Starmer and his team hang out at Westminster where the political correspondents, political editors, as far as any of them are not uh, kind of feeding the Tory machine, um, and quite a lot aren't at the moment, I can tell you. But they they are conditioned by certain assumptions. Public spending is a sign of Labour being irresponsible and immature and profligate, etc. And it is much harder to put a case uh, with those kind of mediators. And that is a factor. Though, as we explored last week, you can get that podcast. I think there are other factors about the lack of... Uh, it's, it's ideological self-confidence, actually compared to the Tories when they are in opposition but look like winning. Um, Thatcher being the supreme example, but, but Cameron too and George Osborne. Remember, they went into that election proposing real-term spending cuts um, and didn't run a mile when they were challenged, albeit with a more sympathetic media. Helen Gordon, Helen the Baker, uh, has been... Uh, in touch, she writes about a whole range of things, uh, of course, including the ongoing Israel-Gaza situation, which, um, uh, yeah, she analyzes the media coverage of that. Um, but she is with Caroline on this theme we're exploring at the moment. Uh, so, Helen, I'll just focus on that, if that's okay with you. Uh, the difference between Cameron and Osborne's antics prior to the 2010 election is unfortunately that a couple of posh boys talking rubbish were greeted with unquestioning support from the media. So the framing of the 2010 election is really interesting. And then, of course, 2015, where it was the same theme of uh, wiping out the, the deficit, the deficit, the deficit. And it was almost taken as read by newspapers and indeed the BBC that this was the goal. And whoever was in charge, Brown in 2010, Miliband and Bulls in 2015. So how are you going to address the deficit, the deficit, the deficit? Um, and you're right, the framing made it a lot easier for uh, David Cameron and George Osborne. But again, I don't think it is just 
the media. But uh, great to hear from you, Helen. Um, Alison Keyes, uh, who signs herself off uh, despondent of Lincolnshire. Uh, anyway, uh, I hope you're not. I hope you're enjoying yourself whilst listening to the podcast and doing other things. Um, I'm still hoping there'll be a Labour victory at the next general election, or rather, I'm hoping that the Tories will lose. But honestly, I can't say I look forward to a Labour government. I just want the Tories out. This is not a great advert for Labour, is it? Um, uh, no, it's not. And uh, I think in the few months going after this whole focus uh, at the top of the Labour Party on retreat and briefing on what they're not going to do, um, which, as Angela Rayner hinted, is not a right or wrong judgment. It's deeply political what you decide you can say and can't say is partly strategic, navigating your way around the media and your readings of these tyrannical focus groups. Um, by the way, Claire Short in her 96 interview is really smart on focus groups. They were in fashion then. And she highlights rather vividly their limitations um, as well as their strengths. So Anyway, with all that done and out of the way, there are a lot of policies in the uh, repertoire of the Labour Party that could be framed in quite an exciting way, um, but they have to have faith in them and not be worried and anxious and defensive at all times because defensiveness feeds on itself. It's very interesting now. You can see people are moving in. There was a front-page story in The Times on Friday about businesses asking for the package on employment rights to be watered down. And I can see that being the next target. I think that is one of the things that uh, Kisama is pretty unyielding about. But, yeah, it's the old cliche, reassurance and excitement. Both are required. Um, so, yeah, Paul Cooper of the same kind of uh, ilk, uh, the most frequent Below the line comments from The Guardian is just vote to get the Tories out. Uh, but then what happens with a change of government? Paul wonders whether the solution to all of this and sense of betrayal of trust and so on is to scrap the manifesto, the pre-election manifesto. The trouble is, Paul, you've got to hold a party to account. And that's the only mechanism available, I think. Um, okay, we're, look, we've been going on for ages and ages, um, uh, but I will read um, because he's always so insightful. One of our guides over uh, climate change is, of course, Nick from uh, Edinburgh. So let me just... Oh, yeah, he describes the extreme caution. I knew Nick would be worried by the retreat on the 28 billion. I met Nick at the Edinburgh Festival, and um, he has been my guide on climate change. He thinks the retreat threatens a Labour government to be directionless and lacking permission for radical action, even if elected. Um, do I agree? Not wholly, actually. I think it reflects a fearful timidity uh, in the build-up to this election, which we've explored, explored to some extent last week. Born on the back of endless defeat that media we've been talking about, um, the perspective of some Blairites, the back to the Rayner point, they come with a political perspective to all of this. It's not, and an ideological one, it's not just right or wrong, there's politics involved. But I, I think, this is for another podcast, <laughs> lots, we're in the election year, everybody. Um I think this is one of the hardest governments uh, or potential governments to work out what it will be like when they get in. On the whole, I follow a strict rule that what you see is what you get. You know, this, you can analyse forever, but look in front of you. So if you read the 97 Labour Manifesto and look what happened, with some big exceptions like Northern Ireland and Bank of England independence, it was sort of laid out in the manifesto. And similarly with Cameron for all this sort of the big society and all the rest of the sort of waffle. Um, well, it was not waffle actually, it was a very clever framing of an argument about uh, a, a much smaller state. Um, 
And 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 so it transpired. Uh, first budget, real term spending cuts in um, July of 2010. But this one is harder to read because, say, the focus has been what we're not going to do, what we're not going to do, what we're not going to do. But there's still quite a lot that they are planning to do. But but the precise mechanisms and details are still vague. Setting up a publicly owned energy. Uh, company based in Scotland will shake up the energy market in some shape or form. We have yet to hear the precise details of the remit. This package of employment rights are quite bold and ambitious. The green plan, though swiped or its means have been ripped out, you know, the 28 billion, uh, but the aim remains in place. You know, now there's a question about how, but these are all quite ambitious things. I think they will do stuff on Lord Frosty Frost's disastrous Brexit and so on. So there are quite a lot of things around which could be, uh, could represent significant change. But then there are the mountainous challenges of Britain's stagnating economy, um, the dire state of public services needing urgent attention, um, uh, and much else. So uh, I find it quite hard to predict what this government will be like. But anyway, look, we better stop now because you've got cakes to bake and runs to run if you haven't finished running whilst listening to the podcast. If you were running whilst listening, just a reminder, live at... Um, the Rope Tackle in Shoreham and King's Place, both next month in March. The links to get tickets will be on the blurb for the podcast or at the specific venues. And we will have so much to discuss at those live events. So, yeah, thanks very much for listening. If you could leave a review, but only if you love it, five stars, that kind of thing. Because for some reason, it, it drives what we call traffic, more people subscribing, more joining in the fun of our rock and roll politics uh, cooperative. So that would be great too. And thanks so much. A lot going on and we will get together very soon to make sense of it all. Thanks very much. Bye. Bye.